Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us, make sure you hit the subscribe button both on YouTube and the podcast side of things that helps spread the word of everything we are doing here. Um, in today's podcast, we're going to be talking a little bit about, um, uh, if I could find it, I tweeted last week a um uh, a lecture that buffett gave in uh, or at uh to notre dame about disney let me scroll down yeah. if i can find it i was when i was adding everything to from your old blog to the free content section that's a great transcript if you can find it online it is yeah. and here we go right here somebody else tweeted this too after me okay and they like totally didn't give me credit for it which is fine it's not our source of content but i'm like hmm, this thing was from 1991 and i happened to just tweet this and then oh, you right. and it's good. Was, it goes it, both ways i'm it trying goes to remember was it tilson or something you it is in the, in, the, in the first thing okay it is yeah, whitney so, tilson um so give credit to whitney tilson good job whitney tilson um okay so i have it right here me or he's gonna say the same thing that you just said yeah i know i'm a hypocrite <laughs> Okay, let's see. Okay, perfect. So he was talking about Disney and investing in Disney. Buffett was. Buffett. Yeah. And about how in 1966, when he originally invested in the company and what that process was like, I thought it was really interesting. So I'm, we're going to you know, talk a little bit about this um, uh, right now. So he says... He you know, was talking about his philosophy. It's a really great document. As you can see on the screen right now, there's 48 pages. So I'm going to put the link in the description and you can go and read it yourself. Um, yeah, it's one of the best Buffett um, lectures, Q&As, whatever that I've ever seen. That no one ever references either, by the way. I mean, I have a copy of it and I read it, but yeah. So yeah. if you, yeah, get your hands on it, put it, get a copy uh, to keep for yourself because it is one of the best. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he was talking about the 20 punch card philosophy. Mm -hmm. If you only have 20 investments to make for the rest of your life, you'll think very hardly about the investment that you're about to make yourself today. And he goes through talk about, so he's like, so when we find something we understand, if we're buying all the business, I want to like the people. If we're buying part of the business, it's less important. We want to buy things we understand and we want to buy them very cheap. If we don't understand them, we don't buy them. If they're not cheap, we don't buy them. If we could buy them with Tom Murphy, my friend, at an attractive price, we do that in a second. And then he goes on to talk about Disney. He mm -hmm. said, we bought 5% of the Walt Disney Company in 1966. It costs us $4 million. 80 million bucks was the valuation of the whole thing. 300 and some acres in Anaheim. The Pirates ride had just been put in. It cost 17 million bucks. The whole company was selling for $80 million in the market. Mary Poppins had just come out. Mary Poppins made about 30 million that year. And seven years later, you're going to show it to the kids the same age. It's like having an oil well where all the oil seeps back in. So you kind of walk through like the process of buying into Disney. So right. it was selling the market for $80 million. Mary Poppins that year made about 30 million itself. So we kind of went through how we thought through the valuation. But basically, he's talking about how this was a no-brainer. So he goes on. He says, I went out to see Walt Disney. He ne had never heard of me at the time. Mm -hmm. I was 35 years old. We sat down and he told me the whole plan for the company. He couldn't have been a nicer guy. It was a joke. If he'd gone to some huge venture capitalist or some major American corporation, if he'd been a private company and I said, I want to buy into this, this is a deal, they would have bought in based on a valuation of 300 or $400 million. Mm -hmm. So that's the most interesting part to me about this, right? So he's not even like being precise with it. He's not doing like a DCF. Right. He's not doing any sort of complicated models. He looked at it as, okay, so you have this great brand. 
mm-hmm. people want to go to it. They like watching Mary Poppins. And by the way, that library is worth something to future generations. It's selling in the market today at $80 million. We could buy up a portion of the company. And I think if this was a private business, the valuation would be $300-400 million. I don't know what the exact value is, but it's kind of like what he always says. You don't need to know the weight of somebody to know that they're fat. He's approximating through the whole process. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that, the way he thinks about that. And do you think that is like the right way to think about it? Because it's like, I've never seen you do a DCF on any company that we own. I know we did it one time when we did work on Howard Hughes Corporation like four years ago. Mm -hmm. But why did we do it then versus like how you typically think about it today? Well, that's a check on sort of uh, whether your estimates are reasonable. So uh, Howard Hughes and some things like that do have this problem where they have significant assets that might take a long time to be realized. You have the same thing with Maryland and Pineapple. You have the same thing with um, uh, U.S. Lime or something like that. You have to ask, okay, if something has reserves to be selling land or to be selling lime or whatever for half a century, how different is that from if it... you know, had sold what it could for five years and then has that remainder left over. That How much of that remainder, those later years thing, how much do they matter? And so you have to do a DCF for that to kind of test whether it's uh, valuable or not. Um, other than that, we don't really do DCFs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just think it's interesting because, you know, a lot of people were talking about the tenure and like what you should use in uh, your DCFs. And we had a question in the last podcast about how interest rates affect the value of your investing and stuff like that. It's like through this situation, he just laid out this roadmap and it talked nothing about it. It was just very simple of it was in the market at $80 million. They earned 30 million on Mary Poppins last year alone. They have all these other things going for them. And I think if somebody were to invest or buy the whole company, it would probably be worth 300, 400 million dollars. We don't really use interest rates in DCS. I don't think there's any reason to use them because the truth is we use what Buffett would probably use in that situation, which is opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't think you need to know what anything is worth. You only need to know what anything will return. And then you compare it to other things you might buy and what it will return. So wh- when people do these calculations and say, what is something worth? I, I find that hard to do. Um, it could be true that something is worth a lot. Uh, but that it's worth a lot in a world in which returns are pretty poor, if that's true. So all you really need to know is, can I make 10% a year in this thing? Okay. And then is my next best choice 8% a year? Then would I rather do this? You know, I think that's how Buffett thinks. Um, I don't think that you really need to know what Disney is worth. You just need to know how much you would make off of it. Uh, and whether you felt comfortable with that. So like the actual returns that the business is generating. So basically saying like, okay, if it's at an $80 million market cap and it did 30 million last year, that's almost, it's like what, 40 to 50% earnings yield today. Now, who knows if they're going to earn 30 million going forward because Mary Poppins theoretically comes out once a year. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so they weren't going to. In fact, that's why I think Buffett believed that. I think that's why, what I would believe about why the stock was cheap. It, Disney was cheap because it had a hit it wasn't going to repeat. And no one wants to be in a stock that's earnings go down. So actually, when a movie is a huge hit, a lot of investors for a movie studio, and there haven't been that many movie studios like this anymore. People aren't used to them today. The last one that was like this was DreamWorks Animation, where they're basically pure play movie studios there. So this is disguised in the big companies. The Disneys and stuff are heavily disguised. You can't really see what's going on inside Lucasfilm and Marvel and Pixar and all that. But... What's happening is they have a big hit. You have, you know, uh, Avengers Endgame or whatever. You're not going to have another one in, in a year 
um, that's as big a hit. And so when that happens, you know that earnings will drop off. And so everyone wants to be out of the stock. Because tough comps. Right. So Mary Poppins, everyone wants out of the stock because Mary Poppins was a big hit. Some movies are bigger hits than other ones, you know. So um, like, you know, of their earlier movies, uh, Fantasia wasn't a really big hit. It cost a lot of money. It wasn't a huge hit. Um, So but then you have another movie that comes out and, you know, does uh, amazing numbers. What Buffett was saying is, of course, you can keep coming out with these every seven years or something. But that's not next year. And that's what people care about. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. So a lot of these things are very long term. And that's and he was right in judging very long term because almost immediately after he met Walt, he died. Walt Disney died. And then the company was not particularly well run for, you know, 15 years or more, Um, but still was pretty successful in the long run. And most of the success they had after that was based on things that had happened in this period and earlier. So, you know, even in the rebuilding the company in the 80s and on. Um, is based a lot on things that Buffett's talking about here. They had this whole catalog that they could use. They had this branding that was still very strong, not just in the United States, but everywhere. But that's not stuff that's going to show up next year. So a lot of people will say that. They're going to have a bad next year. I don't want to be in it. You mm-hmm. know? What research do you think he did? We know this? some of it. He went to Disneyland. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he was in the area anyway, but went to Disneyland, yeah. Um, talked with Walt Disney. Uh, probably read their annual reports knew that it was a very sure. strong brand would have read their annual reports i mean at this point disney is hugely successful that he's talking about that's the thing that's interesting so you adjust it for inflation and stuff and you're like this is a fairly small company mm-hmm. not i mean it's big but fairly small because once adjusted for inflation i he said the market cap was what 80 million in this one yeah 80 million 80 million so adjusted for today's i don't know exactly what that would be but i'm guessing we're in the 500 to 700 million or something range not much more than that um, I guess small cap stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but the biggest, in many ways, the biggest name in Hollywood at the time. So Hollywood is an incredibly successful in the middle 1960s. Um, Disney has already at this point won a ton of awards. Uh, during that time, it might have been the most Academy Awards any uh, one had won at that point. I I don't know during his lifetime. Yeah, it could have been. Um, so I mean, things you can compare it to maybe Pixar. There's nothing else I can think of like that. Um, and we know how much Pixar was valued and stuff before Walt Disney bought it. Um, a very successful company, already having some success with some TV stuff by this point. You know, he's right. If another movie studio got the chance to buy it, it wouldn't be at anywhere near that market cap. Mm. There's no doubt about that. I just, you know, I just sometimes I wonder, like, and again, maybe it's... This wasn't under the radar at all, Walt Disney in the 1960s. Yeah, it was a bargain Huge. plain sight. Oh, and he, at this point when he's starting up... It kind of reminds me of his Apple Vest. They already had a relationship with one of the TV networks and stuff. It was it was very well known, yeah. It reminds me of his Apple investment in a way. Yeah? Like bargain in plain sight type of thing. Yeah. A lot of people were worried about Apple or China. Whenever they people talk about like things to be worried about a company, they're like, China. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, Disney's a little different because at the time he invested in it, there wasn't a history of can you really build a brand among kids? This is the first generation in which there's a focus on kids, um, the baby boomers, um, as a group that you could actually market to and that you could keep marketing to, that you could market to their kids. He saw that looking at it, you know. Um, so there was a probably a sense of faddishness and stuff like that that people would have had with a company like this, a sense that, you know, they wouldn't be that... Um, it wasn't as legitimate a movie studio as ones that put out a lot more movies for adults. Why do you think he hasn't invested in Disney recently? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that Disney's been that cheap recently. 
Um, he doesn't like movie studios. He hates the movie studio business. Yeah. I, le- I learned that in Ted Turner. But he owned... Book. Right. But he owned Disney. I mean, look, I, I we've talked about it a little bit. I think the movie production aspect for live action films is not good. Uh, I think some of that has changed if you want to count superhero movies and stuff as live action things. But uh, they have certain similarities that are a little bit closer to animated. Um, animated movies have been successful with a few people who, who did a good job with them. But they're a different sort of business. And distribution is a successful business. Um, but there's a problem with companies that are have distribution and production needs and there's always a problem where you won't you will be tempted to produce more because you can distribute it and things like that so um and there was a very bad period for movies after the part that he's talking about there so if we're talking about mid 1960s through early 1980s it's a very bad period lots of money being lost capital costs are pretty high which is a very serious thing for the movie business movie business is um benefits a lot from low-cost capital um, high interest rates are not good. High short-term interest rates in particular are very bad. So, um, yeah, I, I think the film library is very valuable, and I mm-hmm. think he would know that. And I think that um, certain things you can control, certain series you can control, so animated things, uh, taking a lot of smaller risks is hard. And a lot of them have tried to do it. They copy each other a lot. It's kind of a tough business that way. But book publishing works the same way. Movie, uh, uh, music publishing, video games. And they're all pretty good businesses. But individually, it can be tough, yeah. Now, the whole it's interesting to me because that would have been a bargain plain site, like what you talked about. And I just wonder how many situations, everybody listening, you know, they come across companies like that. There's a bunch of businesses that we're familiar with, right, as consumers or whatever. So whether right. we, you know, use a Dell laptop, even though I guess Dell's not public, but maybe I use an Apple or I have an, an iPhone mm-hmm. or you're on your iPhone. Which yeah. You, don't have. Don't <laughs> you know, where you could really, I like Bunger's approach to investing where he's very much like he does a whole lot of nothing and then he pounces when he thinks right. there's opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that situation with Buffett, was an opportunity where take the market price out of it, take the stock price out of it. It presented a very interesting opportunity where if somebody, if Walt went directly to Warren and said, Hey, I will sell you 5% of my company for $60 million. He wouldn't even think twice about it. Right. And you get those opportunities in the market or 80 million, whatever it was. So sometimes I think liquidity, stock prices, charts, everything like that, the news flow. Yeah. It really makes people, you know, think twice about things. Or let's say you trade more in or invest in, illiquid stocks and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you start to see more shares come out on the ask and people start to say well who's selling you know who's selling that no stuff sure so i have talking a little bit about that i pulled the first eight things that you look for or look at when researching a stock okay and you said the first thing you do and i wonder if this has changed right all right this will be the title of the uh the video, the podcast episode? No, we're going to talk. No, it'll be Disney. It's kind of more free form, right? So this is from 2017. You said the first thing you do is check long-term stock performance. Like what is the annual return in the stock over 20, 30, or 40 years? So Buffett in that situation, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe he's not checking the long-term, you know, stock performance, but I'm sure Disney has done. Okay. I'm not sure, but it's a, it's a business that he has definitely known. Disney has been public for a while by that point. Yeah. It it had done well. It was known as a successful business. Um, yeah. 
It always been short of capital. That was his big risk. Walt was crazy about spending tons of money, and they had to keep borrowing more and more money to do it. Everything they did was a little bit bigger than before, but it was a very successful business. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it's all about just finding all the historical data that you possibly can on the company. Yeah, that's right. very important there. I mean, you don't want to just think... I mean, he knew that. You don't want to just be like, was this Mary Poppins thing a success? Okay, good. You know, uh-huh. you want to have a... It's very different if there's been 10 Marvel movies and now you can evaluate the value of the franchise than if there have been two that were both originals and you have no idea what the sequels are going to do. He had a good idea of what a Disney movie was. And, you know, um, so, yeah, you need a long history that way. I just wonder because I'm getting all these emails and I see all these tweets, right? People listen to the podcast and... I just think a lot of people, if they almost simplify their investment approach, they okay. can dramatically improve their returns. And that's kind Maybe of Maybe in some market at. eventually, but not right now. What do you mean? Right now? Not right now? No, I mean, not right now that they, you don't need to do the, make these adjustments. Is, these adjustments aren't going to help you do better right now. No, of course not. Because those, those things are not going to matter so much in a market that's the way that it is today. Um, yeah. So, but a lot of these things are similar to how I would have looked at it back then. It was a little harder to get charts that long back then so that's a more recent thing there were there weren't you didn't have 30 you didn't have 10 20 30 year charts in the 1990s actually you had no long-term charts yet at first i mean it's like if you his whole thing is like invest in what you know right if you look at a lot of his portfolio it's a lot of things that he does know things he likes yep he likes he's always likes trains he's always likes candy Mm coca-cola um you know stuff like that so i'm just i don't know sometimes i yeah, just think some like people invest in what they know sure. but i just think sometimes there you know there could be a great strategy behind waiting for those fat pitches that do happen in the market you know yes where you have those companies that oh yeah that you know very well are very dominant and then all of a sudden the market gives you a very opportune time and it's back to what you were talking about really approaching the mr market as he's there to serve you yeah well i mean i but the thing with buffett is he, he could go a few years without buying something Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you look at what he owned in Berkshire in the early days and stuff, there's not a huge amount of turnover and stuff. It, it's tough. For, for most people, their problem is going to be that they want more. I mean, Buffett spends an incredible amount of time investing, thinking about investing, and very takes very few actions. The average person is going to want to take a lot more actions and um, spend a lot less time thinking about it. Is that because of liquidity? No, I think it's an action bias. I just think that, I mean, I think it's true in gambling. I don't think anyone wants to think about what bet to make for 30 minutes and then make one bet. I think they'd rather make 30 bets, uh, you know, uh, based on instinct and stuff like that. They want a hands to move faster and things like that. I think it's more enjoyable for people. Yeah, I mean, you look at Munger's portfolio, and he owns three stocks, right? What he calls yeah. three stocks. Uh, Lee Lu's Fund, mm-hmm. Costco, and Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, and I mean, I can even think of things that Buffett's done and stuff where, if anything, he's maybe had a little more turnover than he should have in some cases, that he would have done better sticking with some decisions that he made that were big decisions rather than making a few small decisions. Um, there, yeah, if you just held Disney. Yeah, if you just held Disney, uh, it would have done pretty well. Although Berkshire, uh, I did the calculation one time and stuff. He would have done pretty well in, in Disney and American Express, but he did even better in Berkshire in those years because Berkshire had a very good run. Um and he, I believe he bought some Disney for Berkshire, too, actually, in the early days of Berkshire. I'm pretty sure he did, but not a ton. Um, yeah, it, would, it certainly would have done well. Although, you know, not the business had a t- rough decade and a half or so after he, where he bought in, but was very successful afterwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just if, if you were to run your own personal portfolio, and I think a lot of people that listen, they are individual investors, so they have mm-hmm. the benefit of doing that. I just think there's such a um, 
advantage for those individuals where you're not constantly having to find new ideas if you're constantly getting new capital. But if you get new right. idea, new capital, ever you could always buy more of the company that you own or already or own. But that's Buffett very hard for people would to do. You sit on cash. I mean, I, my guess is I don't think Buffett really took money in and then used it to buy the same stuff he'd been buying before. I think he bought new stuff with it or, or, um, uh, or held cash, you know, until he came up with another good idea. Uh, yeah, I mean, Buffett's purchases are Buffett's big successes, his home runs are in a smaller number of industries that he knew pretty well and thought about a lot. And I do think that most people could benefit from that, focusing in on a few things and doing taking actions more rarely. Um, the problem is, like I said, um, there are long periods of time where there's nothing to do in a certain area. So let's say you spend a lot of time thinking about insurance or banking or something. There are actually sometimes a few years where there's not really a lot of good choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are you going to do in banking in 2006 and 2007 where everything's going well uh, in like backwards looking results if you're looking at the trailing 12 months? Uh, all the stocks are pretty expensive and you know they've made a lot of loans that probably aren't that great. Or even if they didn't make them, their competitors made them. And, you know, um, there's not a lot of smart things that you can do. Uh, you know, energy stuff. Okay, you spend a lifetime thinking about like oil and gas and stuff, but when it's at $100 a barrel, what do you do? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you see that with Buffett's things. I mean, he made a bunch of investments in um, newspapers and things like that, but he made them in kind of particular uh, times. You know, there'd be a few years where you could make them and then a lot of years where he couldn't. Um, so that's the problem with learning about any sort of industry that way, that there's, you know, the opportunities come in clumps in a short period of time. Do you think he would like theme parks today, like Cedar Fair? He's never Vail shown Resort, an interest in Six theme parks. Six Flags, yeah. uh, Sea World. No, he's never shown an interest in, in those things. It's interesting because he's talked about Disney and his interest in that. And at the time, Disney was two things: it was a movie studio and it was theme parks. And he hasn't really bought into movie studios or theme parks. So, yeah, because I was looking. I think Six Flags. If you purchase Six Flags pre-pandemic. Okay. And you held all the way to today, I think you would actually be up on your investment. That, that is the disturbing thing, right? Lately, the pandemic reopening type things and how far they've regained in a lot of these, uh, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I talked about some companies that um, like wrote up some companies like uh, Marcus, who's a theaters and um, also hotels and some companies like that. And the recovery has been so big in such a short period of time when there's been no recovery in the business at all. So, you know, the problem is they just, all these companies are going to have more debt. Mm-hmm. You know, some of them, I mean, Marcus can sell some, thing off, some things off, some excess uh, assets and stuff like that. But this does create a one-time permanent um, hit. You know, like I expect cruise lines to do fine in terms of generating good returns um, in the future, their margins and things like that, the occupancy that they have. However their capital structure has changed a bit in that they had a that one-time loss has put debt on their balance sheet that they will have in the future and so they are actually more expensive than they were before this is a this hit does stay with the company even though it's only a one-time thing not repeating i just wonder do you think there's um a good spot for you know sort of the reopening like the rebound stocks i don't see it i mean i know at one point you said You'd I wrote be, them up before, yeah. Yeah, you'd be potentially interested in, you know, either movie theaters or yes. you could play the cruise lines by buying leaps yep. in Carnival. 
And I thought that then. There was a different price then, though. Uh-huh. I mean, you can go back and listen to when we were talking about the, those things. Uh, there's a reason I wrote up Marcus when I did and when we write it up now, I think. I mean, I don't know. Do you have the most recent chart on that? Yeah. Um, so, so we could go one year. Yeah, so it, it was in the 8 to $10 range, um, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for a, few, a little while there. And look, the truth is the business has deteriorated, in my view since that time period yeah um i think some things have changed which permanently harmed the movie industry as compared to what it was before i don't think that that happened by that point um and so i think the stock has gone nowhere but up during a period in which actually the economics of the business may be harmed a little bit not only that but i mean you're also if you're gonna buy marcus you're gonna make a bet on Marcus is travel. Hotel. Yeah, Marcus Hotels. <laughs> that's a problem there. Yeah. And so it's not that I think... I mean, how look at their stock today. When, so what was the last... Let's go back in time. Where were they? Do you have a longer-term chart that you can do there? Um, what level were they at? Okay, so they're back at a level that they were at in on the way up. If you look there, you can see that that was... 2016 what, area. Yeah. So do we really think that movie theaters and business travel focused hotels are worth as much today as they were in 2016? I don't. So it's much more expensive. But people can look at that and say, look how cheap it is versus the high that it had. Mm-hmm. Um, Cinemark, isn't ju- Cinemark is just movie theaters. So that's a little different. Um, but I think there have been some change. I don't want to overstate it. I don't think it's like airlines. But I think there have been some changes in um, the movie business because of how long people's behavior has had to change. And so that will change things in the same way that it will change demand for office space and things like that. So you really think Cinemark in the future is going to have a more challenging time? Yeah. That's the first time you've said that. On the podcast, at least. I'm more uncertain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, more challenging, I don't know. I mean, some movie theaters will go out of business. So that will be a different story that way. But they, yeah, people could have changed some of their behavior. Now, some of it will be positive. They may be able to use less labor. They may be able to have people order more in-app, get things themselves, concessions right then. Marcus certainly experimented with that. Some other companies have. I think they can drive more higher spending on concessions without using labor uh, and controlling more of it inside their app and inside their membership programs and stuff, I think will increase because of COVID people got used to doing yeah. that kind of mm-hmm. thing during COVID. Um, but no, I think that that office space, I think that, um, airline travel, I think that hotels that are based on business travel, I think movie theaters will be affected and I think they'll be affected long term because of changes in behavior that makes them less certain now than they were before. I think all of that is um, more of a risk than, say, like, um, like yeah, for example, brick-and-mortar retail. I don't think will be as affected. Um, because I don't think you introduced – people understood there was Amazon before. Mm-hmm. You didn't introduce a different idea of how to do that. But the idea of watching movies at home that are new movies and of finding different things to, to spend your time on um, is a change. The biggest change, I think, is office space and business travel. Because businesses aren't, you know, don't experiment with that. And this is kind of a forced experiment. They don't run an A and B test on that, but they kind of were forced to see it. And so they're now know if some of their spending on office space doesn't matter. Some of their business travel doesn't matter. Um, But yeah, I I think the recovery is too much in these businesses. Yeah. Why do you think Buffett has never bought into a theater company? It seems like his, you know, typical type of company. Uh. 
they're better business now than they were 20 years ago. So through a long period of his investment time, they weren't that great businesses. Um, it's been a lot of consolidation. A lot of consolidation. They were too aggressive, using a lot of leases, things like that. Um, I don't, it has similarities to the gym business uh, in terms of what happens and how over uh, over expansion goes. Um, I've been interested in the movie theater business because of the consolidation and the rationality of some of the groups and what they're spending on, uh, improving the experience, trying to up the amount of spending per person, I think is very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you have to grow the movie going audience. I think it can shrink by quite a bit and you can still make more money over time because you can shrink the number of locations and because you can up the, um, total spend, the gross profit per person that you get on a combination of concessions and, um, and tickets. I mean, you it's an interesting business because you have a group of people, millions of people every year, every every week, uh, you know, when it's not covid, who are willing to go out in whatever weather there is um to a place that's pretty far distant in some cases from their home and make an event of it. Mm-hmm. So the potential to make a lot of money off of them is big. I mean, the monetizable potential of movie theaters is really big. They are groups of people who want to be fed, who want to be entertained, who want to spend a few hours out. I mean, that's a really big opportunity. And so I, I think that you don't have a problem if you're, you know, your attendance goes down a little bit over time because the number of locations can go down over time and because I think there's a lot of potential to make more money in different places, whether it's selling alcohol, whether it's selling more convenient type things for them for higher quality food. Eventually there you will sell merchandise there for at some places. You'll use some of your floor space for that. You'll use some of your floor space for virtual reality, for arcades, for whatever other things happen to be popular at that moment. And you can compete with those things. Um, So I think, yeah, movie theaters, I think, over time, if they've been given enough time to make this change, would be in a good position. What worries me about movie theaters is not like people not going to them and stuff. What's always worried me is the the bargaining power between the movie theaters and the studios yeah. and what their interests are. And their interests aren't a hundred percent aligned. You know, the what makes the most money for a theater is not exactly necessarily what makes the most money for that movie. And maximizing the potential revenue of the movie, you know, is a little different. So that's always been a concern. I think movie studios do understand, though, that the way to maximize revenue of a movie is to have some theatrical run. And I think they know that even now. They've seen that. And I'm a little... I don't know. I think some of the stories that have been told about things... Like, I've seen some things where they say that they've made as much money from releasing a movie without... And in a couple cases, without it being running in theaters and stuff. I think that's... I don't think they're doing the calculations correctly. Are you saying like over streaming it? Like streaming it as opposed to releasing in the movie theaters? Yes. So in some cases, what people said, so for example, there was some stuff like, like uh, DreamWorks as an example through Universal. Um, They said that they made more money or they made the same amount of money because they get 100% of the uh, revenue if you watch it through their streaming platform and pay for it, whereas they would only get about 50% of the revenue if it played in a theater. Okay. The problem with that calculation, though, is a few things. Number one with that one is... They released a movie, a sequel to something, when no one else was releasing stuff. So this is a very big factor in the COVID things where people think, oh, you know, um, 
they didn't release it into the same landscape that they had. And that's where you want to be careful. I think the studios understand that, but I don't know that the people writing about it understand that, that, um, if you have a world in which you don't put out any really attractive movies, and then you put out a movie that people really want to see, it will do huge numbers. A major reason that limits how much movies make, especially in theaters, is the other alternatives. Sure. And there's a lot of things about COVID that people don't realize with that. Like, why do people do so much of this thing or that thing? Um, you know, it's because they didn't have any alternatives. You get rid of those alternatives. I mean, we could talk about that more with the macro economy, but that's one of the concerns with the macro economy is people do this calculation of here's where the economy is and it's below what it was before. It's below what it was before with certain things shut down. Yeah. So you have to make the assumption that people will switch from what they're doing now to the things they're not allowed to do or can't really do the way they want to. Mm -hmm. um, but if you just start up those things that they're not doing right now and also kept all the things that are, people are spending money on right now, then your economy would be way um, beyond what it was before COVID hit. Um, same sort of thing. So it's a trade-off between them. You know, the, the, a major reason why people watched certain movies was because they were the only options out there. A lot of movies were pushed. A huge number were pushed. I just wonder what is going to severely bounce back post-COVID, which were, I guess, basically already there, right? But I guess My, everyone having the vaccine, everything opening up again. What's going to bounce back? What's going to be something new where, um, you know, maybe we're not going to travel a lot? Like, what's the world going to look like? I mean, my feeling is cruises. Because now, you know, huge. we're talking about, like, competing against, for some companies, really strong comps because maybe they benefited from COVID, right? Yes. So some people could look at that, you know, like, oh, the, the trade's already over, for example. You know, what's going to bounce back? What's going to be strengthened? What's going to continue in the future? So you think cruises will bounce back pretty quickly? I don't know about quickly, but I think cruises uh, cruises are one of the ones where I think the... It, I don't think anything has happened that will change people's um, behavior regarding cruises, whereas I think it has in other areas. Um, I think people will be hungry to ha have people who love cruises and it's a small group of people who do a lot of them, mm -hmm. um, have been starved for it now for what will be a couple of years and it will be a kind of experience that they haven't had before. And so it'll be something that they're interested in. They lost a lot of money though, during the, um, during COVID and they're going to be carrying more debt because of that. Um, and the stock price has recovered quite a bit already. I mean, some of these stocks have recovered a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily saying that the stocks look all that attractive to me. Uh, but I am going to say that I expect that when it does happen, uh, that people can cruise regularly again, that the amount of bookings you'll see and stuff is going to surprise some people. And there'll probably be articles written about, isn't this insane? Why are people doing this and stuff? Because they would think that cruises would be the thing that people would be least interested in doing. Yeah. But I don't think so. I think the things that change are when you have a, the, the, the risk to business is when you, what you never want people to do is be able to trial the alternative, right? So like if, if you had a toothpaste brand or something and what could it spend the most advertising on stuff that it would want to do, the thing it would want to do is to try to convince people to never try the other brand. If we could just get you not to see that the other brand might be somewhat comparable and stuff, you know, what the alternative could be. Mm -hmm. So that more than anything is what's most important. That's the problem that I see with office space and business travel. No one would have tried to see exactly. I mean, it's too big a risk to try this out on your own, but every company ran the experiment. They were forced to. Right. 
basically everyone ran the experiment on movie theaters. And it's my concern because the studios never would have run it an experiment where they release things the same time as, as Warner brothers has done release things the same time in theaters and on their app. They never would have done that. And now they did. And they've done it for a bunch of movies. They're getting a lot of data on it. Um, so it's a big concern. And you know, that also changes things. Remember without those apps and things, movie um, studios have limited data as compared to movie theaters. Movie theaters have these loyalty programs and things and have a lot more data on people. Um, so it's a big difference. Uh, and then you take it to Carnival. What's the alternative? Not traveling. Right. Or not taking a vacation via cruise ship. Yeah. A little bit different and than movie And I think people theater. will want that back. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the long run, this may slow down fleet growth and stuff like that. I'm not saying that they're attractive stocks right now, though. I don't want to say that because they're not that cheap compared to what they were in the bottom of the recession and uh, of the, the COVID you know, shutdown for, for um, cruise lines. But it's the kind of thing that I expect will be more like what people were expecting, where it's like it shuts down and then it opens back up. And it's a temporary thing, a total shutdown. And then you return to levels that you had before. I mean, at first, I expected it to be higher than levels that we had before. I think that cruise lines at first will report that they're booked through for long periods of time, and especially for certain kinds of things, like really long trips and stuff like that. They're going to say, you know, the really long cruises and stuff were completely booked and all that, and, and that may surprise people. But I think that will happen. When they talk about pent-up demand, I think there'll be a lot of pent-up demand specifically for cruising. Um, you know, whereas some of the other businesses, I don't know. it's a little more complicated and we'll see what it's like. I mean, there'll certainly be some for a while with movie theaters and things. People wanting to go out and see that, but there's just more testing of that Mm -hmm. that could change it. And that's what worries me. And you think business travel for like hotels is going to be challenging? Yeah. I mean, all these things have this problem where a hotel lasts forever, you know, a cruise ship lasts for decades. So if you decrease demand by a bit, then you probably didn't decrease supply fast enough for that, you know? And um, my feeling is that for some of these hotels, for instance, we'll take hotels and for airlines, they were set up to make money on business travel and that subsidized to some extent everything else that they were doing. So there's lots of hotels where although a lot of people in their hotel aren't groups and things like that, without the corporate business, they wouldn't really be making much money. So... I think that that will be a problem and will take a few years. And that's what we've seen before, too, is consumer recovers faster than business, you know, in recessions mm. like that. And so I would expect the same sort of thing. I do think that, yes, I mean, I think cruise lines will recover, like cruise, use of cruises will recover much more so than business travel and airlines and hotels. Yeah, definitely. Got it. I just, I really wonder why Buffett, it's surprising me that he hasn't, bought more Disney through the years or theme parks in general. Maybe the more modern theme parks, they're very capital intensive. I don't know. It's never, I mean, it's, he never, doesn't really talk much about them either. I've done like gone through the Buffett FAQ I have or everything he's ever nope, read or, or never like, talked or written, about them. Nothing. No, not a big entertainment person. Uh, in terms of his investments, I would say. So, you know, I say both movie studios and theme parks that way. It could, I don't know what it is. If it's concerned about people's changing habits and things like that, I don't know. Um, he gives McDonald's as an example for things, but then doesn't really invest in food things that way, restaurants and fast food and stuff like that historically. So there's certain industries he talks about sometimes and doesn't do a lot with that way. Um, Disney, though, he put a lot of his fund into and everything. So at one time, he did like it a lot in the 60s. 
he seems to like things where people use it every single day habitually so you know coca-cola for example amex slide in the the card it's true and you, you don't know, do that with disney gillette yeah you know, I, shave every day right i think disney is a different um because people have more choices do you want to go to disney world or do you want to that, that's true but here's the problem go to the ball game you could say that yeah but here's the thing he owns seas which is a once a year purchase basically a gifted one he mm. could buy any candy business he could have bought any candy business that people actually consume all the time. It's a totally different business, the candy business of what people buy at convenience stores and stuff to eat themselves versus what they gift once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. He bought the one that they gift a couple times a year. Um, I think that things like Disney uh, have a brand that's very powerful, even though we're talking about things that are, in a sense, not habitual. I've said that before with things, whether it's um, their theme parks or things whether it's marvel or um or pixar or or disney branded things that it has a brand that stands for something uh in for the minds of some people and that it's not really uh the fact that it's not habitual isn't a problem i think that you know the the durability of like their theme parks or something is big um and more durable than a lot of businesses that are regular frequent purchases you know I'd have more faith in that than a razor brand today that, you know, Disney will be doing certain attendance numbers at its theme parks in 10 or 20 years. Sure. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a once every some number of years for most people, it's not even a yearly thing to be able to go to a Disney theme park. But the idea of it, I think means something that it doesn't in other ones uh, in the industry. Disney's a little weird that way. It, it has pretty strong brands in areas that are fairly non-branded. Um, there's little awareness from the general public of what studio is putting out a movie, but they know what a Disney movie is. There's little awareness of like um, theme parks. Basically, it's whatever is the one you can get to. I mean, you know, sure, that's why yeah. if, if you ask people what theme park they go to and stuff as, as a kid, it's like where they grew up. This yeah. is what was there. It's uh-huh. not, oh, yeah, I love the, I go to all the Six Flags parks around the country or, you know, things like that. But Disney has a special name for itself that way. That would be one of my questions if I were to have lunch with him. Okay. It would be why haven't you ever invested more in theme parks and his thoughts towards that. I'm kind of curious to hear if you were, that's one of my questions. Okay. If you were to have, let's say you won the lunch auction, so you paid whatever it's up to now, probably three million bucks, right? What are some questions you would ask him? I don't know. I've never, yeah, I've never wanted to do that or thought about that or anything like that. When people talk about what would you ask? I have no idea. Yeah. That'd be kind of fun to see. <laughs> I mean, you could ask questions about things that you weren't sure about from the past, I guess. Um, I mean, he chose not to invest in Disney stock uh, when he could, when Cap Cities did the merger. He could have just kept it all, uh, kept stock and done that and continued to own Disney. He chose not to. Um, you know, but that was a, but that was also TV networks. There, there's other things in there too, besides that, because it would already merge with ABC. Uh, Cap Cities ABC was what was merging into it at the time. I mean, my my thought on that one, I think I've said before, is I don't know if he would have done it because of Eisner at that point, how far along it was with Eisner and what was happening, but maybe I'm wrong. He didn't like movie studios. In the Ted Turner book, when they were talking yes. about he was going to have a meeting with yep. with Buffett and whoever Ted Turner was with, I forget who it was, but he said... It was, ta- it was uh, yeah, whoever Ted Turner was with, but it was... Um, Turner might have been there with... 
I forget if it was Malone, but anyway, it was definitely Murphy and Buffett together. Murphy and Buffett, yeah. Yeah. I think Murphy. No, who was? Somebody told Ted, whatever you do, don't talk about want, like wanting to start a right. movie studio or like, you know. Well, he wanted to buy a movie, buy a movie studio. studio. Yeah. yeah. And so, and, and Ted Turner was pretty aggressive with those sorts of things. I'm sure Buffett didn't want someone to be buying in a bidding war a movie studio. I'm sure he liked movie studios less than any other business at that time. And I do want to point out, this was a period that was some of the worst times for movie studios. Um, the middle part of the century was a time that was really hard for them. The last 25 years has been better than the, let's say, 30 or so years before then. And he was talking about it in that period. Um, yeah, and he said the meeting went well until he told them that he would want to buy a movie studio. He said Buffett just kind of is like right there. It was done. No, he didn't want to be yeah. involved with that. Sure. And it's completely changing what the company was. Mm-hmm. I mean, you read the Turner book, so he would do that all the time where he would completely Ted, yeah, was a bit crazy. go in a, in a different um, direction that way, right? He's my type of crazy. <laughs> so someone would be investing in the company, right? Thinking they're buying into uh, UHF stations or whatever. And then it's okay. Now we're a super station doing all this stuff. So now we're some sort of cable company, but then bought you know um professional teams right so you'd be in that business which you hadn't expected at first then you'd be invested then you'd be trying to take over movie studio and all of that that went on then you'd be launching 24-hour news network yeah you know all those kinds of things and he was doing that constantly he i mean a, some of his success came from ending up with a board that actually stopped him from doing anything he had to basically give protected up, him from give him. up significant control of the rest of the cable industry and some of that was a pretty successful period i don't know if he would have been successful without it um the things he bought up and stuff did do really well but they were going to consume a lot of cash and everything and he was going to keep having to come up with more financing whether it was you know issuing a lot of bonds or what he was going to do um he had a ton of success with the things that he did but he may have run a little ahead of himself on that without that board mm-hmm. I, you know he may have used debt a little too much and things that were starting up would lose money at first for a while um yeah no i don't think buffett and turner would have been a good combination no yeah it seems like the exact opposite of somebody that buffett talks about wanting to invest with yeah and if you want to see about the movie studios not being a good business and everything read uh, the curse of the mogul right which one? Uh, Bruce Greenwald, the Curse of the Mogul. Oh, I haven't read that. Is it Bruce Greenwald and Jonathan Nee? Some professor? Like yeah. Yeah. No, I haven't read that. Oh, yeah. So he, uh, yeah, you should, um, I guess, read that one. It's a l- little bit like the, um, like his value investing, uh, Buffett, uh, Graham Buffett and all that. Um, because it has some, I don't know, it's a little bit more f- formal, I guess you could say. But uh, sort of the idea that people have of, you know, all these media moguls and stuff. Um, did they really create value and all that? But you could also just read the books. I mean, you can read a couple of books about Murdoch, a couple of books about Turner and, and um, Sumner Redstone and whoever else that way and see which ones you think create a lot of value. It's a very mixed bag. Uh, a lot of them keep buying things even when it doesn't make sense and, and all of that. And so it's interesting to see. I think the actual movie studio business is not as bad a business as it gets a reputation for. I think some of the stuff... I think some of the stuff attached to it is not necessarily that good. And there's a temptation if you have a movie studio for various reasons with economies of scale and stuff to do too much. There's a very strong tendency in that Hollywood's gone better at, but there had for a very long time been a strong tendency to produce too many movies. Hmm. 
And I think that comes in part from having distribution and production tied to each other and some stuff like that, because you want to have a certain, and they'll even say how many movies they want to put out a year and stuff. And really that's not the best way to do it. Just like with a insurance company or something, it's not best to be like, we're going to write a billion dollars in premiums, whether people want it or yeah. not, you know, whatever price it'll end up being priced at. Yikes. Um, you know, so if Paramount says we're going to do 12 movies or something, then they're going to try to, you know, you have to do that and you have to plan a few years in advance to do that. And so sometimes you end up putting out too many movies. And there were periods where they did. They've cut back on that. The major studios have, if you look at movies released, released by the major studios, it's been a number that's been trending down for a long time now. They've been strongly under 100 movies released by major studios on average for a very long time now. Whereas on average, the price that was per movie higher. created that way has gone up too. Yep. But maybe that's a better model, yeah. You know, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's reasons why I think that might make a little more sense. Now, there's actually a ton of movies because independent studios and stuff release things that aren't counted in what I just said. But uh, yeah, making fewer and, and there's just a lot fewer n- movies that aren't based on some pre-existing material. Um, there's more sequels. There's more lots of things that way. Uh, but you know, you have those libraries from this which is with the turner things and stuff we were talking about with the disney things i mean look at that's the thing about disney disney plus Mm -hmm. right a huge part of it huge part is the stuff that buff is talking about that just having that library over all the time yeah never Uh selling it off and everything yeah um allow them to move into an internet thing they never had to imagine what it would be they just know that people want that content which all stems from what their brand yeah and uh turner created a channel Turner Classic Movies, what, um, which is f- like 50 to 70 years later than when most of the movies on it were created, probably mm-hmm. is when he launched the channel. Um, so no one ever envisioned a cable channel. Everyone just, they didn't even envision video cassette inside of the time. They just thought you'd run a movie and then no one would ever see it again. Yeah. Um, and then it had a life that much longer afterwards because of creating content that people want to see. And, you know, we've talked about that before, but that is something with all of these sorts of things if you have content that people want then there's a lot of value in it even if it's just selling it to netflix and all those sorts Mm -hmm. of things if you don't have a way to get it yourself the advantage of things like disney and those kinds of things is they have pretty broad um portfolios of brands built up over time through these mergers same thing with um warner brothers right so they have a a portfolio that they can work with um, so you've got HBO in the same thing that also has Warner Brothers stuff, and that helps protect them. You know, DC and other Warner Brothers films together with things that people would want to watch with HBO and all of that. You know, um, and a few a few companies don't have as much of that. You know, even like we said, like CBS, Paramount, which is the same company. Um, what about Lionsgate? Yeah, I mean that's Lionsgate's. I don't know if they use the term now, but historically the term used was mini major, right? So it does have that problem where it's right on the cusp there. Um, If you want to, that's the idea of here's a movie studio that might have insufficient scale, right? Um, And, but that's a good example because I guess Lionsgate was public at the same time that DreamWorks Animation were public and both of them would have fallen in that same category. Um, they occasionally had a movie that was a top movie of the year. You know, one of the, if you looked at a list of top 20 movies or something, you see a DreamWorks animation movie or a Lionsgate movie, but clearly the average of their box office and stuff did not put them in the category of a major studio. When I think Lionsgate, I always think like horror. Well, it depends on because of what they put their, their name on. Right. Yeah, so uh-huh. that's the problem. Yeah. They, I think like Saw 
You ever seen okay, those movies? Yeah. I think that was so there, so <laughs> yeah. there you go. That, that, they put graphic, their graphic, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, so they put their name on those sorts of things. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, They're making a push to streaming as well. I think they have their own app. Yeah, and um, they're all going to do that. We'll see what people do with what things they sign up for. I wouldn't be surprised if people sign up for a lot of um, different choices that way. Yeah. But the things they might think of first, of course, are um, the ones that are a little bit broader portfolio. I mean, you know, Disney's in a really strong position. And sure. Then maybe, yeah. And then maybe um, uh, Warner. I haven't watched The Office in a couple months. Before, it was just habitual. I just put it on when it was on Netflix. Because it got moved to... And you haven't embraced Peacock or whatever. I haven't signed up for it it yet, no. Is that the name of what they're doing? I believe so, yeah. 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 But that's something. So Universal does own DreamWorks Animation. They shut down some other animation stuff that they owned. Um, They uh, will have that. They did, you know... I don't know. They... Universal maybe is more in the Paramount category, to be honest, but we'll see. I mean, I think I think uh, Disney is ahead of everyone, of course, on that. Yeah. But I think I think that Warner is strong, uh, you know, so that uh, having HBO and and um, DC and all the Warner Brothers things under one uh, thing makes like HBO Max or whatever they choose to put things out on a very strong position for them too. And especially like globally, which is the other thing that Disney and HBO both have, is they're pretty strong around the world, um, which isn't as true for some other ones. But, I mean, people might subscribe to any of those. They might have hits at times from them. But I, I do expect them to to be more Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and some of the names of the biggest studios we just talked about. You know, and we have talked a little bit about the fact that maybe the antitrust stuff has changed now so that you could have a movie theater Mm -hmm. owned by someone who is involved in making movies. But my guess is if that happens, it won't be the major studios. It will be the ones who've kind of not had success. It'll be Amazon and Netflix. AMC or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Amazon and Netflix would be the ones that would be most logical to want to be in those businesses probably. Um, and I don't know if they do, but one issue is they don't have, remember those things don't have, like I said before, data, right? So they don't have data at the point of people watching the movies in a movie theater. They have huge amounts of that data for themselves online. And that's one of the things. And then the other thing is distribution. Um, but you know, anyway, those haven't worked out that well. I, I would have guessed that um, Netflix and actually making movies and Amazon making movies would have done better by this point, and they haven't done that well. They haven't had a lot of success in production. Why is that? Amazon has more Almost all internet companies company. have had terrible times trying to produce movies. I mean, I've read a bunch of books recently about internet companies, and it's amazing how every one of them tried to do have Hollywood produce some content for them instead of just like doing a production deal with someone to do an output agreement, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's not the business they're in. They're not creative people. I don't know. <laughs> but like like Amazon, they could build the whole, you know, unit at their company and hire I, whoever they want. I wouldn't do it. I think it's better for them to do an output agreement with someone that's already existing. So to find someone and have them put all their movies with them or TV shows and things make it for them, cost plus type agreement or something. I mean, Amazon's really making a push. I was reading to, you know, 
like exclusivity for NFL games and stuff. Yeah. So that's something to do. Maybe they feel that that will work for them. I don't know. I mean, they have a weird thing that I'm not sure that the most... There's a lot of things. I mean, I think Amazon pursued the idea of having... Um, trying to win awards, which I don't think is a good match for them. And then I think the things that actually drove engagement with Prime, actually converted people to a subscription on Prime and stuff, were totally different content. Um, I've mentioned before, I think, like the Grand Tour, which they got, which is basically a redo of something that had been on the BBC. Um, but the people have been like fired and stuff. Um, they just agreed to take on these controversial personalities and do the show again. And, uh, you know, so you're cloning what was already there. And I think that is something that probably was successful for them. But that's the opposite of award-winning whatever kind of stuff. That's kind of dumb reality type stuff. Um, Personality-driven, things like that, which might make more sense. Yeah, would it be good if they if you got a Joe Rogan or Howard Stern or whatever? for Yeah, things like that might work. But you have to think about that. They decided they wanted to win Academy Awards. And they, you know, they did. Yeah. They can win Emmys and Academy Awards and stuff, but I don't know that that's the best fit with their company. If you spend enough money, anyone can win Academy Awards and, and Emmys. I mean, if you, if you, I mean, because you can, I mean, the creative people will work for whoever pays them a lot of money. So you can finance a movie, and sure. you know, people if you're willing to pay more than anyone else. I can't even name one that they've won one for. Can uh, you? Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. So, Am- do you know Manchester by the Sea? That's no. an example of the kind of yeah. It's an example of the kind of movies that Amazon has made. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. They've done some things with some others. I'm being unfair in that there's they've done some things that are a little more commercial and stuff. But I would have said they should have gone in a much more commercial direction. How long until Amazon buys or Jeff Bezos buys an NFL team? That's a good question. Who knows? Yeah, I mean he's not he won't be Amazon anymore, right? He's just the chairman, correct? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, we've talked about that before that he was transitioning to some other, doing other stuff. Blue origin and yeah. Other so, things. I mean, maybe COVID changed that for a little while. That's my guess. Probably. What do you mean? That he was briefly re-engaged with Amazon more than he, he was. Normally be. Yeah. Yeah. They said yeah. that he wasn't really around the office much when, and also just like uh, prior to COVID. Um, and with COVID, there was a lot of um, Amazon was very important to the country, and there was a lot of negative publicity for Amazon mm-hmm. and all that at the same time. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy. I don't even know what the title is podcast, but I hope that you enjoyed all one hour of it thank you so much everybody for tuning in with the both of us make sure you hit that subscribe button both on youtube and the podcast side of things and we will see you in the next podcast